Hey, good morning. Um, I'm normally talking at this time, uh, usually the first Sunday of the month, about the Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing that for the last couple of years. But uh, the elders kind of notice that it seems like the world is spinning out of control. And uh, the news is filled with tragedy. Uh, you know, it's one terrorist attack after another. And on top of that, we now have violence among our own, seemingly based upon tension between law enforcement and those people who happen to be black, or some of them. Uh, and uh, we thought we ought to talk about this issue and kind of looked around the room and everybody said, well, can't you've already offended everybody in the church, so you might as well talk about this one. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, no, I, I think this is an important issue. It's a very sensitive one. And to do this, all we've got to do is talk about some wildly divergent worldviews, the history of the world, and then make practical application. That's all. So uh, please uh, stick with me. Uh, this is uh, going to be quite a, a race itself. And uh, the title here, The Great Race and How It Relates, uh, may seem a little strange, but hopefully by the end it'll make some sense. Uh, Lots to cover here. I've got little time for any one topic, so please hang on and pay attention. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is uh, uh, talk about some different views on race, okay? And the first one is the evolutionary view. This is content-heavy today, folks, so again, try to pay attention uh, the, uh, this theory holds that physical differences that we call the different races are due to man evolving from different subhuman species separated by location and time. And these roots to this view are relatively recent, just within the last 150 years. But it's important to understand what those roots are and what the fruit of those roots produce. Now, I've got to give a warning. A warning here. A lot of what I'm about to say, I passed out on a handout on a message about, I think in September of last year, when we were talking about Here We Stand, What is the Truth? And if you read that, it was very tight, you know, small font and all that, so maybe some of you didn't. You were probably shocked, at least I hope you were, and if what you hear today, I hope you will be shocked with because it is truly amazing. Uh, you know, we never hear the, the full title of Darwin's most famous work on the origin of the species, because it goes on from there and says, by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Darwin envisioned the spontaneous formation of simple life, evolving into higher forms through the merciless forces of nature selecting the most fit among mankind. Darwin believed that evolution shaped man. In his later book, The Descent of Man, he said that man evolved as various races, with some races more developed than others. Darwin classified his own white race as more advanced than those of lower organisms, what he called them, such as the pygmies. And he calls certain people groups other than his white group savage, low, and degraded. Darwin wasn't the first to propose biological arguments for racism, but even evolutionist 
Stephen J. Gould, and I think this is on your handout, said this, quote, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Eugenics is a term that was used to label the view, the attitude, and even the government policy that sees the weak and defective as undesirable and therefore worthy of weeding out of society in the gene pool. Now, while Darwin never used that term, as far as we know, it's fair to say that he would have approved of it, uh, and he certainly provided the philosophical foundation for eugenics and clearly uh, gave scientific, at least in those days, scientific support for it. Darwin's sons and other family members became leaders in the eugenics movement. And the, so the evidence connecting Darwin's theory to eugenics is simply too obvious to be of coincidence. Darwin's scientific materialism infiltrated political theory. Marx and Engels took up Darwin's theory as the, quote, basis for natural science in the historical class struggle. And it worked into the official communist doctrine of the Soviet Union. The Nazis defended themselves at the Nuremberg War Trials by pointing out that the eugenics movement originated in the United States and was supported by none less than the United States Supreme Court. The effects of Darwin and eugenics on society, law, and government policy is frightening. It was used as a basis for racism by many and led to laws against interracial marriage. Uh, it has also been directed or has also affected some United States government programs. In 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service conducted research in Alabama called the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. This experiment recruited poor black males to observe the progression of untreated syphilis. As penicillin became available, these patients were denied this cure so that their syphilis might progress undisturbed. The, the, the Tuskegee experiment went on until it was uncovered uh, by, the, by the New York Times in 1972, 40 years. And over those years, many study participants died of syphilis, infected their spouses, or even their unborn children who were born with congenital syphilis. More recently, Dr. Ben Carson, you probably know him, uh, during the political campaign when he was involved, he made the comment that Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was, in fact, a eugenicist and was intent on culling the black population. And for this, he was labeled a conspiracy theorist. But what did Margaret Sanger actually say? Well, some of this is on your sheet there. She called immigrants, minorities, the disabled, and the poor, quote, human weeds, reckless breeders spawning human beings who never should have been born. Her avowed purpose in promoting birth control was to, quote, create a race of thoroughbreds. She herself initiated the, quote, Negro project designed to sterilize unknowing black women. Her grandson, Alexander Sanger, made a Darwinian defense of abortion in 2004 when he said, quote, abortion is good. 
we become, we must become proud that we have taken control of our reproduction. This has been a major factor in advancing human evolution and survival. Now, the facts that we see on the ground today are that Planned Parenthood, the largest provider of abortion in the United States, uh, has 78% of their clinics in minority communities. Blacks make up 12% of our population but account for 35% of the abortions. The result is a reduction in the black population of one-third in the last 40 years. If the Ku Klux Klan had accomplished it, it would have been justly labeled genocide. Um, we're going to move on now to uh, some history and politics. This isn't exactly a, a, a worldview, but it's just what has happened and what is. But it's important because the history of the U.S. contributes to the emotion and importance of the racial issue. Clearly, slavery was part of our early American experience and is in the background of all the discussions about race. Christians were, in fact, the driving force behind the anti-slavery movement, both in, in the United Kingdom and in America. Here in Topeka, we have John Brown and Brown versus Board of Education. But other things like pictures of lynchings, marches, riots, batons flying, and even assassinations all play in the background of our minds when we consider this issue. But perhaps nowhere is the race issue in America more stark and, frankly, more confusing than in politics. The slavery issue was one of the major causes of the formation of what we now call today the Democratic and Republican parties. Based upon the political situation today, with the huge majorities, between 80 and 90 percent of African Americans voting for Democratic candidates, one might conclude that certainly that party championed their cause throughout history. But history tells us otherwise. You remember that Honest Abe Lincoln was a Republican. Uh, if, if just uh, last week, we watched the reenactment of the free state uh, legislature for the Constitution in Kansas when Kansas was a territory, wanted to become a, uh, a state. And it was the pro-slavery Democrats in Congress and the pro-slavery President Franklin Pierce who sent Union troops to Topeka to stop the Free State Legislature from forming. Now, I don't have enough time here to cover this issue, of course. I recommend for your uh, viewing the movie by Dinesh D'Souza, Hillary's America. Uh, I don't know whether it's still in the theaters or not, but you can get it eventually. And this will give you a good idea of how this all transgressed. But the portion that I found worth the price of admission uh, in this movie was an interview of a professor from Vanderbilt Law School who's figured out how all this dramatic and deceptive shift in loyalty took place. Uh, this is Professor Carol Swain, and her interview is just devastating. We're going to shift now to the biblical view, as opposed to those others. Uh, from a biblical perspective, one might argue that the creation of the different races is recorded in Scripture. After the flood, Genesis 10 records that the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, each fathered a lineage and refers to each of them as, quote, their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So it appears that there was some separation geographically and by language. 
However, sometime later, we don't know how long exactly, as mankind is known to do, there was a consolidation of power that God notices in Genesis 11. The people said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, the Trinity, go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. Again, this is the biblical view. The families that scattered from Babel brought different combinations of genes with them. But their physical appearances, differences were, were relatively minor. But as these different groups became isolated from, from others, they likely married within their language groups and with a limited set of genes. As they intermarried, certain characteristics began to dominate due to each group's small gene pool. Over time, different people groups display distinct physical characteristics. Today we see these, uh, the distinct physical characteristics as of, between people of African or European or Asian descent. Pretty obvious. So the differences in appearance were caused by God's dispersal from Babel. However, under the biblical view, the term race to designate different categories of people is or should be irrelevant. Why? Because all have descended from two ancestors. But you might ask, if we've all descended from Adam and Eve, why do we have all these different skin colors? Well, Darwin's error was later exposed through the field of genetics. Again, science is the friend of Christianity. What Darwin didn't know was that all people have the same brown-colored skin pigment called melanin. A person's genetic makeup determines his potential to produce a certain level of melanin. That's why we see a, a range of skin colors from light to middle brown to dark. Yeah, culture produces some differences, but the differences in appearance literally are only skin deep. Isn't that a cute picture of racial harmony? Isn't it? No, it's not. I suspect these guys have fought quite a bit because they're brothers. And I know what you're thinking, but they weren't adopted. They're twins. And I know you're, what you're thinking, some of you, they, but they have the same father. White-black twins are rare, but they do occur. And it just goes to point out that it's all a matter of genetics. The genetics that came from Adam and Eve and later the eight people on the ark. You know, the Bible doesn't even use the term race in reference to people. In fact... When Paul said that he knew the identity of the unknown God that, that the Athenians were worshiping at Mars Hill, he said this, He, God, has made from one blood every nation 
of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. You need to notice that the term race often is most often used today to classify people based almost solely on physical characteristics. Now, there are distinctions in the Bible based upon faith and culture and location. So we hear about Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and Romans and Ethiopians, certainly. But there is no mention of race or appearance here or anywhere else in Scripture. So, guess what? We're all related. We're all in the same family. And here's a statement of racial supremacy. There is one great race. We call it the human race. This is why Paul said that all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we're all descendants of Adam. Jesus Christ became a descendant of Adam when he came to earth as a man and died as a sacrifice for our sins, and he became the last Adam. Now, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Among Christians, some have fallen into the misinterpretation of Scripture or the rationalization to conclude that people groups should not intermarry probably because of the dispersal at Babel. Right along with the eugenicists, they've fallen into that. However, you've got to admit that our sovereign God allowed people to discover a thing called transportation and to disperse through the lands and mix it up. Now, God does condemn intermarriages in the Old Testament. But that was not based on race. It was based upon sin and idolatry in those other cultures. Now, one question is that, that we hear about a lot today is, is government the ultimate solution? Okay? Now, another way to put this is, don't we just need to change bad behavior among people? Have you ever heard that term, you just can't legislate morality? Well, I'm going to, like a lawyer, argue out of both sides of my mouth today. I say not true when you say you can't legislate morality because every time you legislate, every time you make law, you are proposing and establishing or enshrining somebody's notion of right and wrong. So in that sense, it is impossible not to legislate morality. And when we look at laws... Some of them are very, very good. The civil rights movement and the resultant laws that came from those uh, have, have given us tremendous strides as a nation over the last 70 years. We often forget that there are still black people living among us who had to go to the back of the bus or could not drink out of the same drinking fountain as whites. Those people are still out there. Christians should support Laws that are closer to God's truth and plan and oppose those that violate God's commands. Laws do set a standard of normality. And they can curb bad behavior. However, no matter what we say, good laws can't change bad hearts. Just because... The law allows a black woman to sit in the front of the bus does not mean there's not going to be a white guy in the back thinking that she should be back there. The law is powerful and absolutely necessary, but it is limited in its, in its effect. 
it might change the fruit of the problem, but it can't change the root of the problem. Given the right set of circumstances, hatred and racism will rear its ugly head and result sometimes in violence. Not everywhere, but it's out there. And the only hope we have of ending it is identifying it for what it is, evil attitudes that flow from depraved hearts. When anyone is killed today in the media, what do we hear? Critics and pundits immediately try to politicize a tragedy. Before the bullet casings are even picked off off the, off the cement, we hear about how we need new laws to address this problem. But no matter how many laws we make, the hearts of people will remain the same unless they're changed by the power of the gospel. This is not a political problem. It is a spiritual problem. So what can Christians do ourselves? Okay, the next two... Uh, Roman numerals are, you can probably get, there's some overlap, but for sake of understanding here, I've divided them up. Uh, with all these news stories about violence between police and, and minorities, uh, you know, Americans go from shock to grief and back through this over and over again. Uh, it seems our flags are half staff more than they're not these days. Uh, here are some things that maybe we can do. First, and these should be on your sheet, understand that we all see life from different worldviews and perspectives and particularly life experiences, okay? Here's a little of my life experience. Uh, it is reported that my great-great-grandfather, I believe, held target practice in his backyard with John Brown's men, okay, with the abolitionists. On the other hand, my grandmother, Austin, uh, grew up in the early 1900s on a plantation in Mississippi. And there were not slaves there, but there were black people working on the plantation. And some of the children, black children, were assigned to play with her. Okay? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember any blatant racial comments, but I'm sure there were some from her. That was her background. Uh, Christy and I grew up in largely white schools in a school district, Kansas City, Missouri, that we were the only predominantly white high school. And there were, at that time, there were race riots in Watts and the L.A. area. And some of that tension spilled over to Kansas City. And I remember watching from higher up in my high school building, students from other schools marching on our high school. Uh, I was even smart enough not to be the first one out of the gate after our Football team beat our crosstown rival, and start, as I rounded the, the field, a group came from the other side, and pretty much I found, pretty soon I found myself on the ground being kicked. But you know, I don't remember any seething hatred or anything like that, because we were pretty much involved. In Kansas City, there's a lot more diversity. Okay, my dad had clients and good friends in the leadership of the inner city, in the black community. And one of his clients was a guy who owned a clothing store. And he would sometimes pay his fees by outfitting Christy and me. And you ought to see a picture of this. Christy and I had matching wool plaid bell bottoms. Can you believe that? We were not only groovy, we were soulful. It was a hoot. It really was. Uh, Christy and I both worked in uh, inner city programs in, during the summer. Uh, 
and, and, and you know, uh, we had a lot of contact. Uh, and we had the advantage of being in the military because in the military, you're, you mix with people. And is there prejudice in the military? Absolutely. Do you have to learn to get along with people and get your team to work together in order to stay alive? Absolutely. It is a tremendous melting pot. Uh, so that was a great advantage for us. Now, was I prejudiced? No. Not openly. Was I colorblind? Not so much. You see, from my experience, my perspective, there was enough going on in my culture and everything to make me believe that they were somehow different. The point here is that we've all got experiences from our views uh, that form our views. Now, imagine if you grew up in a home where people in the other part of town had it better off. And your parents made comments often about how they were treated poorly by those other people solely because of the color of their skin. Do you think you would be colorblind? I want to make a statement here, not about the movement, but about the words, Black Lives Matter. Okay? Uh, I was listening to one of the presidential debates, and one of the people from the audience asked a question, do black lives matter or do all lives matter? And the candidate stumbled just for a moment, then he said, well, black lives matter. I was dumbfounded. It defies logic. And I've been thinking about this, and I may not have this right, but what I think's going on here is that when we hear that statement, black lives matter, what we really hear is only black lives matter, a blatantly racist comment. But I think what they're saying is that from their perspective, we don't believe that black lives matter to us. I don't know. Next point is related. We must be as objective as we possibly can. Things are rarely black and white, no pun intended. Do not jump to conclusions. Things are not always as they seem, especially in the media. In this age of sound bites and biased journalism, context is often the casualty. Proverbs 18 tells us if one gives an answer before he hears it, before he knows the facts, it is folly and shame. And it is truly folly and shame for anyone, whether a policeman or a protester or a Protestant pew sitter or a president. How's that for alliteration, Mike? For any of us to judge a matter before we know the facts. But that's exactly what we see happening. I had this pointed out to me. Again, this gets back to our experiences. A uh, long time ago, a law professor happened to be a Christian was, was helping us see this. And he said, I want your immediate response, spontaneous response. He said, the hypothetical is this. A man has been shot outside of a convenience store. Now, what time of day? Somebody said, nighttime. Where in the city? Inner city. Color of the shooter? Black. You get the point? That's our mindset. We have these preconceived notions, and it's all based upon our experience. Clearly, we need to be 
praying for love, peace, and justice. You know, 1 Peter 4 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. We always choose love and always forgive. Authentic peace flows from genuine love, but it's always accompanied by righteousness and justice. You know, we all desire to experience peace and love with others, but the sin that we have and that we have in our culture cries out for justice, and justice must be served. Of course, believers in Jesus know that justice will ultimately be served when each person stands before God to give an account for his deeds. God will bring justice, but he calls us to love mercy, to walk humbly, and to do justice. Do what you're called to do as a citizen, to respect and pray for government to do what they're called to do as a civil authority. God grants some of limited authority to civil leaders for the sake of justice. Unjust officials are to be held accountable by the government. In a fallen age, human government is riddled with human failure and sin. Every act of police injustice need to be, needs to be paid for under the penalty of law. While we should not assume that the police are incapable of mistakes or wrong, we should never judge a policeman guilty until proven innocent. What peaceful citizen would wish that the city do away with its police department? But yet, in the, the polarization, I actually heard somebody say that we need to abolish the police on TV. Through prayer and proper honor, we seek justice by promoting good government because government is intended by God to be God's gift of common grace to man. Christians should seek the good of their neighbors when they promote good government. That's why we talk about politics here because we want good government. Overall, if cooler heads prevail, we will have less violence. We've got to weep with those that weep because people of different skin color have suffered and we bring healing when we are empathetic and we offer to help. We've got to recognize and mourn sin's effect. Uh, the, event, the events surrounding us remind us that we live in a sinful, cursed world. As we feel the effects of the fallen creation, we've got to view these events with sober-mindedness. Police injustice and any fatality, these are results of humans being human in a sinful age. So, let us mourn the effects of a fallen world with those who mourn. Sin is tragic. It's not God's will. We've got to have hope. Let your heart not be troubled. This isn't our city. We have a home where God will make police non-essential and there will be no punishment given because Christ has paid the sin, paid the price for every sin. Let the victory of the cross in your personal life compel you to seek gospel transformation in Topeka. In dark times such as these, God uses the hope of Christians to powerfully shine in a culture in despair. Finally, what can the church do? You know, we've got to first recognize the reality that we've got a problem here. Okay? If this isn't obvious, you probably have your head in the sand. Okay? We can pick apart each incident and look at the particulars, 
but the sheer volume of incidents tells us that we've got a problem in some communities. There's a clear lack of trust between some minorities and law enforcement, but that distrust goes both ways for good reasons, okay, uh, or for understandable reasons. Regardless of how or why, the reality is that most people do speak in terms of race, even if only to distinguish cultures. We, the church, have effectively divided more or less along lines that appear to be based upon appearances. We've, come to, we've got to come to grips with our efforts to lessen these distinctions so that people will draw them, draw together. It seems clear now that maybe we don't have the racial slurs that we used to. There are still latent or hidden attitudes, assuming differences by all. Our greatest hope is not in trying to uh, convince ourselves or others that we're better than we really are, but in seeing ourselves as sinful as we really are. We need to support those who risk their lives to protect us. Social order that holds our nation together is disintegrating as we speak. The violence and terror against police officers shows us another dimension to this problem. Law enforcement personnel are here to serve and protect us, and the vast majority of them are faithful, ethical, and brave. Police officers need to hear that we need them and we're grateful for their service. Moms and dads, red, yellow, black, and white, all need the protection of the police. So while we call for justice in case of police brutality, we've got to remember that these cases are just a few. We still have to stand with and honor our men and women in blue. If we don't, our society will descend further into chaos. We've got to lead by example to be colorblind. What do I mean by this? Well, once we understand we've got a problem that the government can't fix, we've got to step up to the responsibility that the church has been uniquely equipped and called to address. We've got to be convinced in our hearts that we are the stewards of the only truth that will take down the dividing wall of hostility that exists in our culture. Could it be that God, who brings light out of darkness, would use these recent tra tra tragedies to show us that our nation is more divided than we have thought? Could it be that God would use this situation to show us that behind all of our good laws, there are still evil hearts? Could it be that these tragedies would serve as a reminder of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the heart and the role of the church in proclaiming the gospel? Is it possible that the church could become colorblind? You know, we can all agree that it's wrong for somebody to be denied equal rights simply because of the color of their skin. When government tries to make up for these injustices, what do they do? They give preferences. But taking people who, out, who are at the, the back of the line due, due to skin color and putting them at the front of the line based upon their skin color only heightens the, the animosity of those who are pushed back. But do we not do the same sometimes? Uh, get a little personal here. The Bible tells us that we are not to be, quote, respecters of persons, unquote. And we usually think in terms of the rich, the powerful, the attractive. You know, don't call them up to the front. But have you ever had the same 
prideful and sinful thought that I've had when I watch a person of color walk into lion and lamb. Oh, we must be really special. Because that African-American, that Asian, uh, that Hispanic, they feel comfortable coming to our little mostly white church. Maybe we should treat them extra specially. Uh, could we agree that every person who walks into Lion and Lamb should get extra attention, please? We should be colorblind. How about if we treat every person out there, inside or outside of Lion and Lamb Church, as either a brother or sister in Christ, or as, some, or as someone who needs the forgiveness of Christ who died on the cross for me and for them. And that leads us to the final point here. We've got to proclaim that Jesus is the only real solution. The prophet Isaiah said thousands of years ago, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Christ is the only hope for rebuilding the ruins of our cities and our culture. Jesus offers us hope to live in an environment of love, peace, and justice. The peace of God was upon him, the love of God flowed from him, and the justice of God rolled down on Jesus as he died on the cross for our sins. But then, praise God, Jesus was raised from the dead, giving us convincing evidence that only he has the power to transform the human heart. And it only a collection of transformed hearts can transform a community from a war zone to a peace zone. So as these events continue to unfold, we've got to remember that his gospel addresses these very real issues of life. Racial injustice and respect for government authority are gospel issues for us. Our gospel compels us to be compassionate and active. We must always think, speak, and act knowing that the gospel is the real solution and purpose of our lives. The love of God must prevail in us, the peace of God must dwell in us, and the justice of God must roll down through us. Lord God, the task seems immense. Father God, so many things going on, swirling around us, tragedy after tragedy. Lord, give us a perspective that does not fear. Give us a perspective that sees your truth and points to the good news of Jesus Christ as the answer. Help us to do that as individuals. Help us to reach out in love to others to be colorblind. Help us to do that as a church. To treat everybody 
with love and joy and truth. Help us to be your children and point all others to you. Father, we ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.